Volume Two, Chapter Four of Celestina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Celestina by Charlotte Turner Smith, Volume Two, Chapter Four. The following morning. Cathcart was early at the house of Mr. Thorold, and Celestina, who rose now earlier than usual, to enjoy, if it could be called enjoyment, a few hours before she was compelled to hide her sorrows under the appearance of attention to the family she was with, met him as he came from the stable, and instead of going into the house, she desired he would walk with her towards the village. "'You have news for me?' said she but if I may guess by your countenance, none that will relieve the weight I feel on my heart. I am afraid not, replied he, yet indeed I have nothing to say that should increase it. Mr. Willoughby is well. He writes to me with more cheerfulness than I expected, and assures me that he has a long letter for you, which he shall send from Dover, where he shall finish it. From Dover? He is then set out on this expedition? Ah, Cathcart, and ought not such intelligence to add to my concern? Not at all, replied Cathcart. You knew before that it was his intention. And he tells me that on the event of this journey depends his ever seeing Alveston again. There is certainly a chance of its terminating favourably. At all events, if this absence is to end your suspense, you should not only submit to it, but endeavour, my dear Mr. Mornay, to keep up both your health and spirits. Alas, Cathcart, answered Celestina, there is nothing so easy to the happy as to give such advice, nothing so difficult to the wretched as to take it. She then inquired into the other particulars contained in Willoughby's letter, and after informing herself of the day when he expected to be at Dover, and how long it might probably be before she should receive the letter he promised her, she turned the conversation on Jessie, whom she expressed an eager wish to see, and soon after Montague Thorold, who impatiently watched her wherever she went, came to tell her that his mother waited breakfast for her. Cathcart, however, declined the invitation to breakfast with them, and wishing Celestina a good morning, and promising to be with her again in a day or two, he went in search of Mr. Thorold, with whom he said he had some business. Many succeeding days passed without any interesting event. The captain took every occasion to impress on Celestina an idea of his consequence, and the fashionable style he lived in, to which she gave very little attention, while his brother, whenever he left him an opportunity, talked to her of books, or read to her passages in favourite authors of which he heard her express approbation. She was prevailed upon to sing duets with Arabella, and he was enchanted with her voice and manner. She sat down to draw the flowers he gathered for her, while he hung over her in raptures or held her palette, or read a botanical description of the plants she was painting. 
captain thorold rode out occasionally to visit such of the neighbouring families as he considered worth his attention arabella was often of his party and mrs thorold engaged in domestic concerns and then if celestina could not escape to her own room before montague who was always upon the watch for her could interrupt her he entreated her so earnestly to walk with him was so obligingly solicitous to please her and seemed so mortified when she attempted to excuse herself that she could seldom resolve to refuse him her conversation even when she was most willing to be alone and in the similarity of their tastes and studies and in the brotherly though silent sympathy he appeared to feel for her sorrows there was something soothing to her sick heart which rejected every idea of love but for willoughby conscious of which and supposing that no man could consider her otherwise than as destined to be his wife or to die unmarried she dreamed not that she was granting to young thorold indulgence fatal to his repose he was himself soon aware of the danger but he courted it and though he understood that the heart of celestina was engaged he fancied that without any pretensions to her love he should be happier in being admitted to her friendship than the unrivalled affections of any other woman could make him he was too artless and too proud of his judgment to attempt to conceal this attachment from his father who had celestina been disengaged would have preferred her with her small fortune and uncertain birth to the richest heiress in the county but knowing how she was circumstanced he saw his younger son's increasing partiality with some concern and took an opportunity when they were alone to tell him the real circumstances of celestina in regard to willoughby i can consider her said he no other than his affianced wife they are parted by some cause of which i am ignorant but which will probably be removed in the meantime her youth and beauty render her situation very dangerous as from her being a foreigner an orphan and probably the natural daughter of some person of high fashion in france who has taken care to destroy all evidence of her real family she is without relations and without protection willoughby's father was my old friend when i was an indigent curate he gave me a living which though i have now from being possessed of greater preferment resigned i consider as my first step towards affluence i am therefore bound to the family by gratitude and to young willoughby i am bound by personal friendship and esteem except something too much bordering on rashness in his temper i hardly know any man so faultless and so worthy of regard he adores mr mornay and i am convinced the happiness of his life depends on their union finding him torn from her for the present at the very moment this union was to take place i entered at once into all the uneasiness that must have assailed him and i voluntarily offered my protection to her which he has since acknowledged in a letter to me to be the greatest kindness he could receive i have promised him to continue it as long as she has occasion for it or will accept it 
do not therefore montague by any of your eccentricities make this uneasy either to her or to me don't fancy yourself in love with a young woman who is in fact married any other kind of attention or regard you show her will oblige me but let us have no making love unless you would drive her away and greatly disoblige me the young man readily promised what at the moment he was sincere in that he would not make love to celestina but he did not promise not to feel the passion against it was too late already to guard him mr thorold however supposed that after this explanation there was nothing to fear from the extreme susceptibility of his younger son and for the eldest he was too certain that he had not a heart on which the charms and virtues of celestina or of any other beautiful and interesting woman could make any permanent impression he was easy therefore in a situation which would have made many narrow-minded and selfish parents very much otherwise and did not think the presence of his two sons at home a sufficient reason for withdrawing his generous kindness from celestina to whom he was indeed affectionately attached for her own sake to whom he loved to consider himself as a guardian and protector mrs thorold always busied about the intrigues and schemes of the rest of the world saw not very minutely into those of her own family as to her eldest son she contemplated him as a superior being who had a right to marry the greatest heiress of the kingdom she heard him speak so often of lady mary's and lady caroline's that she concluded he might have any of them whenever he pleased and had set her imagination so high as to his merits and his fortune that she never supposed he could think of bringing her any other than a titled daughter-in-law celestina whom she looked upon as a creature whose title to respect was very questionable a dependent from her birth and now little better than a dependent on herself was not a person likely to make any impression on captain thorold and the prejudice operated on her person and her manners mrs thorold could not see that she was handsome or feel that she was interesting and when the attention of young thorold was very strongly marked towards her his mother only ridiculed him telling him he was never easy but when playing the philander and that he cared not with whom nothing therefore interrupted the progress of that serious passion which montague thorold determined to indulge and of which celestina was perfectly unconscious the more unreserved slattery and free address of the captain she knew how to repress and received all his advances with so much coldness that his pride was piqued and unused to the slightest repulse he determined not to brook it from one who had in his private opinion very little right to assume dignity or affect disdain the manner he took up towards her in consequence of these opinions was so very disagreeable to her that it forced her more than ever into the society of his brother before whom though the captain held him very cheap as a boy and a pedant he could not well address to her such speeches 
as he had ventured to utter several times when he seized an opportunity of speaking to her alone or unheard by the rest of the family whenever therefore she was compelled to be below she contrived to have montague thorold sit next to her to accept his arm as they walked and to address her discourse to him and flattered by this evident preference he let no occasion pass of proving how happy it made him so passed heavily for celestina the days that intervened between that when she last saw cathcart and that on which she expected willoughby's letter from dover the day arrived at length and celestina who happened to be sitting with arabella and her brothers when the letters were brought could hardly support herself while the captain took them from the servant and reading the direction of each threw them across the table now one to his sister now one to his brother and bade montague carry a third to his father there was none for celestina though cathcart had told her it would be directed to her at the house of mr thorold of this bitter disappointment however she spoke not but tried to conceal the change it occasioned in her countenance and hastened as soon as she could to weep alone over the sad idea that willoughby's diminished perhaps annihilated love had allowed him to torture her with suspense which he might so easily have avoided by punctuality another almost sleepless night was the consequence of this delay but though without rest in the night celestina rose as soon as day appeared at no other time but early in the morning she had now any chance of being alone either in the garden or the neighbouring fields and the air seemed necessary to her overburthened spirits in the fields she seemed to breathe more freely and her heart which often felt as if it would burst was relieved while she was allowed to weep unmarked and uninterrupted a narrow road shaded by thick rows of branching elms led towards the village which was that way almost a mile from the house of mr thorold who did not inhabit the parsonage but an house he had built on a farm of his own celestina to avoid being seen from the windows of the house which commanded the garden and the meadows near it took her way down this lane her thoughts ran over the strange events of the preceding years in which she had experienced so much anguish anguish embittered by the transient promise of supreme happiness as she reviewed her whole life it seemed to have been productive only of regret why cried she was i ever born alas my existence was the occasion of misery to those who gave it me why did dearest mrs willoughby take me from a confinement where i was dead to the world and where perhaps neglect and hardship might long since have released me what will now become of me if willoughby forgets me how shall i find courage to drag about a wretched being useful to nobody for whom nobody is interested and which seems marked by heaven for calamity these melancholy reflections led her on 
till a turn out of the road brought her to the stile of the churchyard. She leaned pensively over it, and read the rustic inscriptions on the tombstones. One was that of a young woman of nineteen. It was her own age, and Celestina felt an emotion of envy towards the village girl, whose early death the rural poet lamented in the inscription. "'Merciful heaven!' cried she. "'Is early death ever really to be lamented?' and should i not be happier to die now than to live as perhaps i shall to be forgotten insensibly this idea took possession of her fancy and with her pencil she wrote the following lines in her pocket-book not without some recollection of edward's thirty-seventh and forty-fourth sonnets sonnet o thou who sleepest where hazel bands entwine the vernal grass with paler violets dressed i would sweet maid thy humble bed were mine and mine thy calm and enviable rest for never more by human ills oppressed shall thy soft spirit fruitlessly repine thou canst not now thy fondest hope resign even in the hour that should have made thee blest light lies the turf upon thy virgin breast and lingering here to love and sorrow true the youth who once thy simple heart possessed shall mingle tears with april's early dew while still for him shall faithful memory save thy form and virtues from the silent grave Celestina, who had a natural turn to poetry, had very rarely indulged it. But since she had passed so many hours with Willoughby, his passionate fondness for it, and his desire that she should not neglect the talent she had received from nature, had turned her thoughts to its cultivation. And now almost the first use she made of it was to lament that she lived, since none of her acquirements were to please him for whom alone she wished to possess either life or talents. She had finished her sonnet, and read it over aloud. She changed a word or two, again read it, and was putting it into her pocket-book, when she was startled by the sight of Montague Thorold, who appeared behind her, though she had not heard him approach. "'Do not,' he cried, "'be offended, dearest Miss de Mornay, if i thus break in upon your solitude and do not continued he taking her hand in which she still held the pocket-book do not punish me by putting away what i have so earnest a desire to hear celestina half angry replied i have nothing sir worth your hearing i have offended you said he in the most respectful tone i see you are offended if you knew my heart, you would know how much better I could bear any misfortune than your contempt and anger. Celestina, whose slight displeasure was already at an end, answered with a smile that he certainly deserved neither. But come, continued she, you were sent, I dare say, to call me to breakfast, and we are loitering here. I was not sent, answered he 
I believe it is yet earlier than you imagine it to be. You are not then offended at my interrupting you? Oh, no, think of it no more, said Celestina, wishing to change the discourse. Is it not a delicious morning? He answered not her question, but fixing his eyes on hers, said, See how soon a second trespass is attempted when the first is so graciously forgiven. May I ask, as the most inestimable favour, to hear once more the lines you were reciting? Once more? repeated Celestina. Have you heard them once already, then? I will say I have not, if my acknowledging that I have will displease you. I do not think, said Celestina carelessly, that will mend your case much, but, however, the lines were not worth your hearing, and everything you even repeat from another, cried he, eagerly interrupting her, is worth hearing. How much more worth hearing when that fascinating voice is employed in expressing the sentiments of that elegant and lovely mind. Oh, Celestina! But forgive me, madam, it is presumption indeed in me to address you so freely. Yet Celestina is the only name in the world that seems to me fit for you. The common terms of formal civility are unworthy of you. Let me then call you Celestina, not in familiarity, but in veneration, in adoration, and entreat you, implore you to oblige me. Disconcerted at his vehemence of manner and extravagance of expression, Celestina now thought it better to put an end to such very warm applications by showing him the little value in her eyes of the favour he solicited. She gave him the paper, therefore, saying coldly, You are anxious for a very trifling matter, and as you have already heard the lines, it is hardly worth the time you must give, hastily written as they are, and with interlineations and erasures, to make them out. "'Give me then time to do it,' cried he, as he kissed the paper and put it in his bosom. Celestina, more disconcerted by his manner than before, said yet more gravely, "'I beg I may have them again immediately.' "'You shall indeed,' replied Thorold, "'but I must first read them.' "'Read them then now,' replied she. "'It is impossible!' cried he, for here is Arabella and my brother coming to meet us, and it is the first time that being with you I felt their interruption as a favour. During this dialogue Celestina had walked rather quickly towards the house, so that they were by this time within sight of the garden gate, from whence Captain and Miss Thorold advanced slowly towards them. Montague, as if conscious of the impropriety of what had passed, now affected to be talking of indifferent matters. And Celestina, ruffled by his wild enthusiasm, and eagerly anticipating the letter which she hoped that day would bring her from Willoughby, felt herself made uneasy by the steady and inquiring eyes of the captain, who had required a very rude habit of staring people out of countenance. She was compelled, however, to endure it, not only while breakfast lasted, but afterwards, 
when arabella engaged her assistance in painting a trimming which was to compose the ornament of a gala dress for the balls at tunbridge whither she was going in june with the eldest of her married sisters who was in an ill state of health End of chapter 4